Let's just start straight away. If we go to Judges, Judges chapter 6, um, <clears throat> and we're going to read from verse 2. And so we have a time where Israel is under the oppression of the Midianites and the Amalekites. The word Amalekite in, in uh, the Hebrew means flesh. And so, you know, I don't know about you, but sometimes I feel like I'm under attack from my flesh and what my, my flesh wants to do. Does anybody understand what I'm talking about this morning? Hello? Yeah. Awesome. You're here. It's good. Verse 2 says this, Because the power of the Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves and mountain cliffs and caves and strongholds. Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites and Amalekites and other eastern peoples invaded the country. They camped on the land and ruined the crops all the way to Gaza and did not spare a living thing for Israel, neither sheep nor cattle nor donkeys. They came up with their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts. It was impossible to count them or their camels. They invaded the land and ravaged it. Midian so impoverished Israel that they cried out to the Lord for help. These guys are under massive oppression, yeah? They're under massive oppression from the Midianites and the Amalekites. I mean, it's, it's amazing. The Scripture doesn't lie. You know, how many people know that the Word of God is God's Word? It doesn't lie. It doesn't exaggerate. It doesn't, it doesn't become evangelistic like I sometimes do with our stories. You know, when we caught a fish this big, but we make it that big because we like to, you know, better work stories. Um, but when it comes to Scripture, it never exaggerates. So when it says that it was impossible to count how many there was and their camels, that means it was impossible. That means that these guys just completely and totally flooded the land that the Israelites were in. They were completely and totally overwhelmed by the situation. They were so oppressed, they could not see any way out. There was no hope for the future. There was just no way out of the situation. I, I don't know about you, but I sometimes have had periods of time in my life, and I feel like there's people in this room this morning, now maybe you're going for a period in your life right now where you feel so overwhelmed by what is happening. Maybe it's a doctor's report. Maybe it's your children. Maybe it's what's happening in your marriage. Maybe you got made redundant. Maybe it's your work situation. Maybe it's your finances where you just feel so overwhelmed that you actually just cannot see how there's possibly any way out, that there's possibly any hope for the future, that there's possibly, I think it's one of the things uh, that, that I see today that worries me about some of our young people, and that is that they just don't see a hope for the future. You hear it in the news, there's no hope that I could own my own home, and there's no hope of this, and there's, there's so much hope being lost because of the overwhelming circumstances of what we're growing up in or what's happening. We live in a world where everything's been challenged, marriage has been challenged, family's been challenged, gender's been challenged. Everything that we believe in our Christian world has been absolutely challenged to the core. We are under attack on all sides, and I don't know about you, but when I look at the size of the problem, when I look at the size of our, of our community, look at the size of what we've got to do to see a community and nation saved, it just feels completely 
completely and totally overwhelming. Like, I know we're on the winning side, but have you ever felt like that really you're not on the winning side? You feel like that maybe we're on the losing side because... Because I know that God's for us, and I, I know that He loves us, and I know that God has already won the victory on the cross, but sometimes it just doesn't really look like it. Is there anybody that kind of feels a little bit like that this morning? Because that's how the Israelites felt. And it says that they did something that is really, I think, is an incredible thing that they did in the middle of that overwhelming, is they started to cry out to God. And the reason why they cried out to God is because for some reason, something happened after seven years of this slavery and oppression that they came to this conclusion that actually if we cry out to God, there is hope for our future. There is hope for what God can do. They, they started to do something which is incredibly difficult to do when we're overwhelmed in our circumstances. They started to dream of a different future. They started to dream of what it could like look like if God got involved. They started to cry out, for God to come and rescue them. They did something that was really impossible to do when you feel like your world is starting to fall apart. They started to dream of a different future. And, and I really believe for you and for I that God wants us to dream a dream that there's no context for. It, it's really easy to believe God for something that he's already done before. It's really easy to believe God for something that you've seen him do in Gina's life, or you've seen him do in Earl's life, or you've seen him do in somebody else's life. Because what it does is creates a context for your hope. It creates a, a, an anchor for your hope. I know God can heal me of this because I've seen God heal other people. Or I, I know God can come through here for me because he's done that for me in the past. But when it really requires us to dream is when we have no context for the dream. We've never seen God do this before in our lives or anybody's life around us. And so we have no context for how God's going to do this. And so our only option is, when we are completely and totally overwhelmed, is to go, you know what, God, we know you can rescue us. We're believing you can save us. We're believing that you can break through in this. But we have no context for what that's going to look like because we've never been here before. I think that we live in a time in our society that we have no context for. We have no context for what's happening in our world today. Things have never been the way that they are today, and I'm not trying to be negative, and I'm not trying to be doom and gloom, because I believe that the Scripture teaches this, where sin abounds, the grace of God abounds all the more. So I'm not worried about how the world is going, but we have no context of when we start to dream of what God can do because it's so different to what we've ever imagined. And in this frame, in this situation, the Israelites start to dream and they start to cry out to God. And the crazy thing is, the people that started to cry out to God is not the people that God went and spoke to. It's almost like he didn't even answer them. He just goes and finds this guy called Gideon who's hiding. And in verse 11 of chapter 6, it says this, that the angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak of Ophrah and belo that belonged to Joash, I'm not even going to try and say that, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a winepress to keep it from the Midianites. And so we see here that Gideon was desperate. He was threshing wheat in the wrong place. He was, he was just trying to get through. 
He was just trying to get a little bit of wheat available so they could survive. He was just trying to get through life. He was just trying to make ends meet. He was just trying to, he was doing it there to try and hide it, to try and fill the enemy so that maybe I can hold on to this. Maybe, maybe if I do this wheat threshing in the wine press, they won't suspect and I might be able to get to hold on to this. I might be able to get to survive on this. I might be able to get to feed my family on this. And when the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. I picture there are some people here today, and include myself in this, that if God truly turned up and stood in front of us and said, mighty warrior, you'd be like, um, <laughs> the person beside me? <laughs> I mean, you don't feel like very mighty when you're hiding. Yes? Hello? And he's hiding there and... He says, you mighty warrior, because God always speaks to who you are, not where you are. God always speaks to your future, not your current situation. Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied, but if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Does that sound familiar to anybody here? Maybe it's just me. I, I know I'm not perfect and you all are, but I have these moments where it's like, God, if you are for me and not against me, hello, my circumstances kind of don't really match. I don't know how many people I've seen walk away from Christianity because they blame God. If God loved me, then and I saw this again this morning. Some person put, put a thing up on a, on a friend's page saying, I don't know why your prayer, prayer doesn't work because a prayer worked, there wouldn't be starving children, and there wouldn't be this and there wouldn't be that and there wouldn't be all sorts of other things. And so they blame God for everything that's bad, but they're never given credit for all the things that are good. And I don't know about you, but I've been plenty of times where I've been in situations where God has come and spoken to me and said, this is going to be awesome, this is going to be great. And I'm like, yeah, well, if that's true, then how come all this is going on? If you're really with me, how come, how come all this is happening? Where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us over to the hand of the Midian. I don't, I don't know about you, but I've sat, I've sat with, with people that have been Christians or been in the faith for a long, long period of time. And they saw the Jesus movement in the 70s where thousands and thousands of people came to Christ. And I lived through the 80s, the faith movement where there's all sorts of the miraculous going on. And it's really easy to, to talk about what has been, but in this case here, I would suggest to you that the ancestors, he's saying the ancestors talked about, I would suggest to you that the old men had stopped dreaming, that they'd stopped talking about what a God had done before because they were so oppressed with what was happening now. They, they had lost the ability to dream, and we understand that when old men don't dream dreams, young men can't have visions. It's very hard for a young man to have a vision of what God can do when old men don't tell them the dreams of what has happened, when old men don't tell them the past and what God has done, when old men don't tell them how God brought them up out of Egypt, up out of the world and saved them. It's very, very hard for a young man who's caught in, in a meth addiction to save a vision for a future broken free from meth addiction when our old men stop talking about the things that God has done. When our old men stop dreaming, young men stop seeing. And I 
want to encourage you this morning, if you've lost sight of what it is that God can do in your world, of what it is that God can do in your family, your unsaved family, you've got to start dreaming the dreams again. I know Caleb and Joshua, when they came into the promised land and God promised them that they would go in, but a whole entire generation had to die off. Could you imagine how they had to keep dreaming and believing for what was to come? Imagine them having to encourage the next generation that's coming through saying, you've got to have a vision for this. We're going to take this promised land. We're just going to wait for these guys to die off because they couldn't dream of what God was going to do. I can imagine the last person of that generation lying on their bed, dying, breathing, kind of like, <gasps> and I can imagine Caleb and Joshua around, this is it, this is it, oh. and he goes, <gasps> and starts breathing again. Could you imagine the temptation to just grab a pillow while nobody was looking and put it over his face so they could step into their promised land? I want to tell you, man, if you've stopped dreaming, if you stop dreaming, our young men can't see the future. We're going to start talking about what it is that God is, and we're going to start sharing the praise reports of the amazing things that God has done, because in doing that and sharing that, it enables people to have a vision for what they, what they believe that God's going to do when there's no context for it. Really quiet here this morning. It's so important that we have vision, because without vision, we perish. Without a vision, we die. Without a vision, we just run around like crazy people, the Bible says. But we need a vision because then we can grab hold of where it is that God wants us to take. And in this case here, Gideon had no vision of his future because his thing was like, where's this God? Where's this God that did all these wonders that these old guys used to talk about? Because they'd stopped talking about what it is that God had done and stopped dreaming about what it is that God could do. Gideon had no vision of what God could accomplish. And so the Lord turns to him in verse 14, and the Lord turned to him and said, go in the strength you have. He never actually answered. Do you, do you get that? Here he is saying, hey man, if that's true, if I'm a mighty warrior, if you're really for me, then where, how come all this bad stuff is happening? God never actually ever tries to defend himself. I think it's incredible. Because I don't know about you, but when somebody's accusing me of something that I haven't done, the first thing I want to do is defend myself. But God is so focused on their future that he's not even going to involve himself in the issues of, the, of what's going on right now. He's more focused on their victory than he is focused on what they're going through. And so rather than even addressing what, what Gideon has complained about, he just says to him, hey, go in the strength you have and save Israel out of the Midianites' hand, and I'm not sending you. It's like, hold on, did you not just hear me? I don't actually have much faith in you right now because all the stuff is going on, and it doesn't line up with what I've been told, how you saved them out of Egypt. And it's interesting that what the Lord says to him is, don't go in faith or don't go in belief for me, but go in the strength that you have. I wonder how many of us have missed out on God doing something because we've waited for him to come and do it for us. The key to the prodigal son coming back to the father was that he got up out of the pit. Maybe, maybe 
your miracle or your breakthrough, your victory isn't happening because you're not actually going in the strength that you have. You're waiting for God to do something first. Yet the scripture teaches us clearly, if you draw near to me, I'll draw near to you. Come follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. There's this thing about you get up and you get moving and then I'm going to join the party. Go in the strength that you have and save Israel out of the Midianites' hand and I'm not sending you. And he says, pardon me, my Lord, but how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest of Manasseh and I'm the least of my family. And the Lord answered, once again, didn't address his concerns. The Lord answered and said, I'll be with you. And you will strike down all the Midianites, leaving none of them alive. Go in the strength that you have. I don't know how often God has said to me, go, and I've said to him, I just need a word. You know, I just need a word. I just need to pray and get a scripture from the Bible. Or, or, or I'll wait for a visiting ministry to come to give me a prophetic word that supports what it is that I feel that God has just spoken to me. Isn't it funny how often we ask God for a word when he's already given us a word? And the reason why we do that is because we read things and Gideon goes on and he does these fleeces, right? Where he, where he says, okay, if this is really you, God, because I'm doubting you right now, then I'm going to put a fleece out and, and, and if the grass all around it is wet but the fleece is dry, then I'll know it's you. And so God did that and then he flipped it around the other way and said, let all the grass be dry the next night and let the fleece be wet. And so God did that too. But I think we kind of, we kind of can I say this, that delayed disobedience is just disobedience? I think sometimes we use, I'm just waiting for God to give me a word, as an excuse not to do something. And so what, asking God for a word is, is, is not a bad thing, it's a good thing, but it's not the ultimate thing. And I think sometimes what happens is, you know if you idolize something by how much you sacrifice to it. And I think sometimes we have sacrificed the things that God wants to do in our lives because we're waiting for a word instead of just doing Scripture says, put your hand to the plow, don't look back. Get moving. Start doing something. Oh, what's God's will for my life? It's really, really simple. Go into all the world and make disciples. You, do, you don't need a word. You don't need a prophetic word from a visiting prophet to say, the Lord would say, go make disciples. He's already said it. He's already said to him, go in the strength that you have. And he's now asking, oh, give me a word. We, we sacrifice so much stuff. We've, I believe that we've sacrificed the, the things that, that God wants to do because we're waiting for this word or, or this. I'll, I'll, I'll do that for you, God. I'm, I'm just waiting for things to calm down a little bit. Life is just a little bit crazy right now. And, and I just need things to calm down a little bit. Can, can I suggest to you that when things are calmed down, it's usually when the enemy has a grip on you. It's when things become a commotion that the enemy is losing his grip on you because he's trying to regain it. Calm seas does not mean the will of God. In fact, if you read all the way through Scripture, Jesus sent the disciples into the storms, not away from them. And he has a massive storm right now, Gideon. He has a huge situation and that the entire nation of Israel has started worshipping the gods that the Midianites and the Amalekites have brought 
And the story goes on to say that what he does is he goes in the middle of the night because he's too scared to do it during a day and chops down all the idols and all the totem poles and all that sort of stuff and gets rid of all the idol worship out of the nation. And then in the morning, people get up and they do a witch hunt trying to find out who had done this. Gideon was not like a brave guy. He was not like a, here I am. I have the word of the Lord. I'm a mighty warrior. He was doing it at nighttime where nobody could see him. Going around, pulling things down, getting rid of things, getting things ready for God to do something. There was a commotion going on in Israel because the enemy was starting to lose its grip on the nation. And so they get through all of that and we get into chapter 7 where now they're going to raise up an army. And that's a good idea to do when you have an enemy, yes? Raise up an army. And so he raises up an army and there's 30,000 people that rock up to help him. 30,000, that's not a bad army, is it? I think I'd feel quite comfortable about that. You know, I love a strategy board game called Risk. Has anybody ever played Risk before? And so what I do is I make sure that I've got heaps of armies and they have really little armies so I can obliterate them. You know, I'm, I'm like Mr. Cautious. I wait till I have like 100 and they have like one and then I'll take them on. If I was Gideon, I'd be feeling pretty confident with 30,000 people behind me. That'd be pretty awesome, but then God steps into the calculation once again, and in verse 2 of chapter 7, it says, the Lord said to Gideon, you have too many men. Now, I don't think God understands you can never have too many men when you're going to war. Yes? You You can never have too many of your mates backing you up when you're getting all bravado with somebody, yes? What has happened this morning? We're so quiet. says, you have too many men. My first thing to Jesus was, you can't count properly. I have just the right amount. I cannot deliver Midian into your hands. Well, if you can't deliver them into my hands with too many, how are you going to deliver them into my hands with a a whole heap less? But this is the key. Or Israel will boast against me, saying, my own strength has saved me. I don't know how many times God has taken me from a bad position to a terrible position. You know, like going from the frying pan into the fire. Does anybody know? You're like, you're praying like crazy that God would do something and it just seems to get worse. Has anybody experienced that? And then you're thinking, my prayers aren't working. And so you're thinking, maybe I just stop praying because maybe, maybe it's the situation is because the way that I pray. I've gone and prayed for people in hospital as a pastor and, and then found out two days later that they're worse than when I first went there. And it's like, sorry, forgive me. I just won't pray for anybody in hospital ever again. You know, I remember praying for one person and they died three days later. It's like, all right, so I got some stuff to work on. Um, I don't know about you, but it's like, it's like you can never have too many men, but he says here, he goes, you know, the problem is if you go with all those guys, you're going to think that you did it. And I need everyone to know that I did it. Trinity said this last night to you ladies, that God is not for you and God is not for me, but God is for God. And God is for his purpose and God is for his ways and God is for his plans and God is for his glory. And he's saying here to Gideon, you don't understand, if, if I let you keep all those guys, you're, you're going to take the glory like you did it. It needs to be that I get the glory. 
And so sometimes when your situation goes from bad to worse, it's actually because God's about to do something. God's about to do something amazing. Because God doesn't like to do hard. He likes to do impossible. And so he says to them, get rid of some of these guys. You know, I, I don't know how often I forget that less is more when it comes to the kingdom. If you're faithful in the little, God will give you much. If you have faith of a mustard seed and you tell this mountain to move, it will move and be thrown into the sea. There's, there's something powerful that God likes to do in the little. It's, it's, he likes to do something which is insurmountable, which is beyond people's wildest dreams. And that's why people come up to you and they go, how come? How, how, how did that happen? You know, your unsaved friends? How can you be so okay when your life is going through hell? You know why God lets that happen? Because God's trying to get the unsaved person's attention to the greatness that he's doing in your life. It's not that God's trying to punish you. He's about to do something glorious. We have way too much of our own thinking. We have way too much of other people's opinions. We trust too much in our structures and our systems instead of trusting in the promises and the voice of our Savior. It goes on in the verse 3 of chapter 7. It says, he says, Now announce to the army, this is God telling Gideon what to do, Anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So 22,000 men left while 10,000 remained. I don't know about you, but if I was Gideon, my, my confidence is kind of diminishing with each of God's involvements. I, I would probably be at the point right now of saying, God, I really appreciate that you spoke positive words of affirmation towards me, that I'm a great warrior. But if you could just not intervene anymore, because you're not helping. I've prayed prayers like that to him before. I don't know about you, maybe I'm just too honest this morning, but I, I've prayed prayers like, okay, if this is you helping, can you please stop? Because I don't feel like it's helping. I feel like this is just getting worse. Now, we know that the story goes on, and it even gets down even less to 300 people. 300 people taking on something like 50,000 Midianites. Are you insane? Is God insane? Is, it, is he, like, how does that work? I mean, I've seen the movie 300, but this is crazy. It's like, what are you doing, God? I think there's something that we can learn from this, because he says here, let those that tremble with fear turn back and leave. I think that you need to, we need to understand something, that if we want victory, we've got to be careful that we're not loyal to the wrong people. There are some people that cannot come with you on your journey. They do not believe that God can do what God's about to do. And sometimes we can be so loyal to the wrong people, so loyal to the wrong thing. Fear is faith in the wrong thing. We, we think that we, we, we have this mindset, and it's true to a degree, but we've got to understand the way that God functions. We have this mindset that when we're going through crisis, we need as many people around us as possible. And that is true, but we don't need the doubters. We don't need the fear people. We don't need the tremble people. So God says, let all those that are scared, let them go away because they ain't going to help us. They're not going to be for us. The minute strife comes, they're going to run. 
We've got to whittle this down to the ones that are going to do this with us. We've got to get down to the ones that are really believing that God can do this. We've got to get down to the right people and get rid of the wrong people. It's not that those people are evil. It's not that those people are bad. They're just scared. And you don't need scared people around you. you know, think of Jairus' daughter in the Bible, and she's dead, and Jesus rocks up to the house, and, and he says she's not dead. She's just asleep, and everyone starts laughing. Because in those days, they would hire people to come and mourn on your behalf. They weren't really sad that she was dead. They just paid them and they'd come and cry outside your house. And Jesus said, she's not dead. She's just asleep. And they all laugh. And then what does he do? He kicks everyone out of the, out of the house, everyone out of the bedroom, all those doubters, all those that aren't with us. You can all leave. You can all get out because God's about to do something that you don't deserve to participate in. The doubters don't don't deserve to participate in the victories because they always doubt it. It's those that are with you. And Jesus raises Jairus' daughter from the dead and there's this incredible um, miracle that takes place. But all the doubters, they missed out on seeing the miracle. Because God can only do stuff with people that are with him. Like I said earlier, I don't know about you, but when I think that God doesn't want to do hard, God wants to do impossible, I think to myself that I shouldn't want to do hard. I should want to do impossible. I should want to do the impossible. Jesus said this, these things that I do, you should do even greater things. And I know scholars try to make it all sorts of stuff, but it's not all sorts of stuff. He's saying these things I do, raising the dead, healing the sick, seeing the lame walk, seeing the deaf hear, the eyes blind eyes open, those things, you can do even greater than that. I don't don't know about you, but I think that's Jesus trying to say, hey, get rid of the doubters, get rid of those that aren't with you, because greater are the days ahead than those that have already been. You can do great things if we just actually get on board with those that believe, get on board with those that are with us. See, God dreams never come in the form of flesh. You can't, you, can't, you can't understand a God dream. And so what happens when we start going through difficult times is, is we actually start to, to um, look to others and we, and we kind of start comparing where our life is at compared to where their life is at. And we can sometimes get really upset about that. And the psalmist did that in Psalm 73. He said, surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart, But as for me, listen to what he says here. My feet almost slipped. I nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their body are healthy and strong, and they are free from common human burdens. They are not plagued by human ills. What he's saying is is that he looked, and he almost slipped. He almost lost his footing because he started looking at all the people that don't seem to be having a hard time and envying what they're doing. But then he realized when he says right at the beginning, but I understand that surely God is good, that God is for us, to those who are pure in heart. I nearly lost that. I nearly forgot that God is for me when I started seeing how easy everybody else had it. My foot nearly slipped. The worst thing that we can do when we're going through difficulties is start to compare where everybody else is at, what's happening in everybody else's life. And the reality is you can't compare what's happening in everybody else's life because everybody puts on Facebook and Instagram all the great things that's happening in their lives. 
Not one of you mums this morning put on Facebook or Instagram a photo of your kid going off his nut because they didn't want to wear that dress this morning. They wanted to wear that dress this morning. We don't put that up there, yes? And so we start comparing what's happening in other world, people's worlds from the outside, and we don't understand their journey, and we don't understand what they're going through. And so we start to resent what God is doing right smack in the middle when God's about to do something amazing, right when he's about to do something unbelievable. And I think Gideon was starting probably to have some doubts. I don't know about you, but if I've gone from 30,000 men or 32,000 men down to 300, I'm starting to get a little bit worried. I'm starting to think that maybe God isn't really quite for me. So what I think I might do is I might go over to the enemy's camp and just check it out, see what they're up to, and maybe we can make some plans. And so in verse 13 of chapter 7, it says that Gideon arrived just as a man was telling a friend his dream. He's in the enemy's camp right now, listening in on a conversation of a man's dream. He says, I had a dream, he was saying. A round loaf of barley bread came tumbling into the Midianite camp, and it struck the tent with such force that the tent overturned and collapsed, and his friend responded, this can be nothing other than the sword of Gideon son of Joash, the Israelite. I don't know about you, but if you came to me and said, I had a vision last night, and uh, what I saw was a, uh, where is it, what does it say? A loaf of bread rolling down a hill, smashing into a tent. I'll be like, did you have pizza last night? Could you imagine if God came to Gideon and said, it's all good, man. There's a barley loaf rolling down the hill. You'd be like, this is getting crazier by the minute. We're now 300 people and you're talking to me about barley loaves. It's like, this is insane. It can only be the sword of Gideon. How do you work that out? God has given the Midianites and the whole camp into his hands. And when Gideon heard the dream and its interpretation, he bowed down and worshipped. And he returned to the camp of Israel and called out, get up. The Lord has given the Midianite camp into your hands. Gideon had a dream that was so big he couldn't really see how it was going to happen. So he decided to go and check out the enemy's camp. And here's the crazy thing. And if you get nothing else out of this morning, I want you to understand this. The enemy dreams of your success. The enemy is dreaming of your success. His dream was so big that he couldn't understand it, so the enemy is interpreting it for him. Man, if we could just understand that the enemy dreams about your success, how much more should we dream about our success? If the enemy sees that we can be successful, how much more should we see ourselves successful? If the enemy can see in the middle of what seems to be the darkest hour in Israel's camp that God can do something, if the enemy believes what God can do in the midst of our darkest hour, how much more should we start to believe what God can do in the midst of our darkest hour? I just think it's so amazing that God sends Gideon to the enemy's camp and he doesn't see all the vastness of the enemy. He doesn't see all the vastness of the army that he's about to defeat. But Gideon gets a word from the enemy, a dream and an interpretation of what God is going to do. 
He doesn't, he doesn't send an angel to him. He doesn't give him a word. The enemy prophesies. The enemy dreams of Gideon's success. And when Gideon hears that the enemy understands that they're going to be successful, and he bows down and he worships and he goes back and says, come on boys, this is ours. And we know that the story goes on and 300 men surround the camp and they have two things in their hands, not even a sword, just a trumpet and a vase with light inside it. And the Bible says that they blow their trumpets and they break their vase. And when the enemy hears the sound and sees the lights, it ends up killing each other. They end up turning on each other in such panic because they believe they're completely and totally surrounded by 300 men. The enemy dreamed. The enemy interpreted The enemy prophesied its own demise. And all it took was a trumpet of praise and broken vessels to bring about a victory in an impossible situation. All it takes, all it takes when we're going through impossibilities is a shout of praise and a broken vessel. Because the enemy dreams of your success. The enemy dreams of your success. How crazy is that? I, when I read that, I was just like, that is so cool. That is so amazing. Here I am, I don't know about you, but here I am in, in my situation worrying, worrying about how, how am I going to do this? How am I going to overcome this? How am I going to break through in this? But the enemy is over in his camp, worrying about how we're going to destroy him, how we're going to annihilate him, how we're going to have victory over him. Maybe the thing that you fear the most is more fearful of you than you should be of it. Maybe the thing that you're so fearful of is actually more fearful of you than you should be of it. I get Julie to share something in a minute, but let me just say this. What I didn't tell you about this story is that the reason why the Midianites were oppressing the Israelites is because the Israelites had turned away from God. They'd started worshiping idols when God told them not to. And the consequence of them not doing what God told them to do, they ended up in oppression. But here's the crazy thing about God that I love so much. Is that even though it's their fault, He didn't use it against them. When they cried out, when they came to their senses, He rocked up. He rocked up and He did something that they'd never dreamed could happen. He started planting seeds of doubt in the enemy, dreams in the enemy's heart of your success way before you started worrying about whether you can or not. And you can sit back and go, well, you know what? My situation, my circumstance is my own fault. Why would God save me from my own fault? Because he's a loving father, that's why. And he doesn't turn around and go, oh yeah, you need to suffer for your dumb decisions. No, no, no. He just waits for you to turn around and cry out. And then he starts to sow dreams into the enemy's camp of your success. Why don't you come, Jules, and share what it is you feel to
I mean, I've just been shaking the whole message, so I'm sorry I've got up, but I really felt to share and I've passed it. We, we went away two weeks ago on a prayer retreat and the prayer retreat was, um, it was on hope and this exact scripture we got during our worship about Gideon and the funny thing is um, we, 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 we felt from the scripture that we had to declare something in the physical that was representing what was in the spiritual. And we got the word that exactly what this is. God wants us to wake up. And last week in the, in the worship, um, Saskia said, wake up. And I really feel that. So what we did is we actually got down to the ocean as a, as a prayer team and we jumped into the ocean and the cold water because we said, God, we're waking up. We are committing so what we actually felt is what we did in that physical was actually we felt what this God is stirring in us in this exact message this morning I don't I want to encourage you because the spirit is so speaking to me don't just sit in your chairs this morning I feel as this worship is on if you want to be part of this battle you can sit in the chair but if you re, I feel God wants us if we're in the battle to do something in the physical and in that physical is taking a step forward for him and saying Lord I don't know how you're going to do this I don't know what you're going to do but I am giving you my all. And you know the miracle? We actually prayed before we went in the ocean. And you know what? Because I was scared of the ice cream cold. I was scared. Do you know what? We didn't even feel the cold, did we? We all were in that ocean. And I don't know, for some miracle, the water was warm. And so we're in there and we just got out. And I tell you what, let's just wake up for Christ. Eh? Wake up. So this is what I really felt while I was praying this morning. We spend so much of our time, I think, sometimes, maybe it's just me, but I don't think it is, worrying and dreaming about what the enemy is doing. We don't spend enough time dreaming about what God's doing. And what we don't understand is that the enemy is dreaming about what God's doing. He's not dreaming about what he can do to you. He's dreaming about what God's about to do to him. And I just think we need a change in perspective this morning that just says, you know what? Hold on a sec. If God is for me, who can be against me? I think we've got to change our dreams. Change our dreams. 